0: so let 's try, given that we 've reached episode twenty, to do the reconceptualization that unmaking classical sense requires if we are to naturalize quantum thinking let 's see how far we get right at the end in a, in really a postscript to episode nineteen I talked about the reason why a particle at the top of a Mexican hat on the dome will spontaneously move and shift down in what's called symmetry breaking. But of course most of the things that you and I encounter in the world, I think it's not unfair to say all of them, don't involve particles individually. They involve untold billions, trillions of particles, in some kind of, as we think of it, solid form, some object. So wherever you're listening to this, fix your eyes on something around you that's solid. Perhaps it's the chair you're sitting on, perhaps it's the phone you're listening on, perhaps it's a window or a door or a house or a car, it doesn't matter, anything you like. Just fixate for a moment on that solid object and ask yourself the question, why doesn't it spontaneously break symmetry and disintegrate before my eyes? And you probably can guess the answer. The answer is because of its inherent stability, because the amount of energy that it would take to disturb it from the particular configuration that it's in would be astronomically large. You could probably break the chair you're sitting on by a simple mechanical process without too much difficulty, but you certainly couldn't viscerate it. You certainly couldn't cause it to dissipate into its particles or the particles from which is made, not unless you had access to an unimaginable amount of energy, which I'm assuming that you don't. So, the world around us, when we look at it, appears, as it has always appeared, to us with our rather crude sensory apparatus. And it's led, over the centuries, from the earliest times, to the belief that there are such things as solid objects that don't spontaneously disappear. So we believe in persistence, And our intuitions find it quite difficult to grab hold of the idea, as we talked about in the case of the cricket ball or the football and the Rousseau goal, that around everything that we see there is too faint, far too faint for us to observe, a cloud of excursions by which the solid objects are exploring other states that they could be in and the reason for this the reason why we don't see this or experience it is that they're just so absolutely vastly massive and demand so much and contain so much energy in comparison with any of the circumstances that would be different from that state of their current uh, incarnation embodiment they don't change because the amount of energy needed isn't available. Put them in the path of an atomic explosion and that's different. Unfortunately, those that have endured atomic blasts do find themselves literally evaporated if they're unfortunate enough to be in the full flood of the energy that is released. So, the first thing we need to do in trying to transform our intuitions is to try, I know it's difficult, but is to try to deny the evidence of our senses, which are not reliable, and start to see the world as at least a little bit fuzzy, a little bit uncertain a little bit not what it seems a little bit given to being distributed more widely than it appears to be so that the outcome of Rousseau kicking the ball to score the goal isn't quite as inevitable as it might have appeared in the fraction of a second when we observed it It might just have turned out differently. But it didn't. Of course, if we go back to the anthropic principle and all the stuff we talked about in that episode, it's also the case that even, as you might say, if there is a universe, an Everett universe, in which it did turn out differently, you and I listening to this are not in it. Uh, It would be a bit weird if you were listening to this in a different universe where England didn't beat Columbia... ...and I'm recording it in a universe where England did beat Columbia. That doesn't happen. But then I don't think the Everett multi-worlds happens either. So I'm not going down that road again right now. So what we have is that whatever appears to have happened is the particular possibility that was eventuated, that was instantiated, that was, re, that was uh, embedded, that was incarnated, that, to use a more common word, happened. That's what happened. But we shouldn't allow ourselves to think that it had to happen. We should rather think that there is a possibility, and there was a possibility, And even as we're writing and thinking and speaking and listening, there is still a possibility that there's going to be uh, an unexpected deviation. But of course, we'll never know that, because even if we are now on a deviation, it's the deviation that we're on. I hope you're getting the gist of this. So there's not much point. In thinking about what might have been because nobody's ever told what might have been. I should qualify that by saying well plenty of people are told what might have been but what they're told is never reliable because once you get into the field of counterfactual conditionals and what might have been's you're very selective about the things that you choose. So that for example and there's a, a, a rather nice amusing light-hearted reference to this in Men in Black 3 where whatever the guy is who can see the future sometimes gets which future to choose wrong of course that's exactly the problem that you might well tell somebody well if that had happened then this would have happened and then that would have happened and then look what a mess we'd be in but of course you don't know what else might have happened that would have countered that sequence of events perhaps made it better, perhaps made it worse. It's pretty futile to even conjecture what counterfactual conditionals might lead to. But all right we've got our first, the first piece of our quantum mechanical transformation which is that we're agreed, all of us, that we're going to start trying to think Fuzzy. We're going to start trying to see the world not as a collection of concrete, fixed, definite things with absolute positions and directions and trajectories and so forth, but rather as a collection of possibilities, some of which have actually impressed themselves on us by being dominant but that there are plenty of other possibilities there as well. So that's what I mean in a shorthand by saying we're going to learn or try to learn or try to retrain our minds, our intuitions, to think fuzzy. That's number one. What's number two? Well, number two is going to be as hard or as easy as you like, depending on how tightly bound you are, to the mathematics that we've had at our disposal for the last two and a half thousand years. Uh, we all learn this geometry, we all learn this mathematics with this algebra, we all learn this arithmetic in our very early years and as an aspect of our acculturation we think our intuitions which of course here are learned intuitions not Uh, found intuitions, we weren't born with them, our intuitions are that there are such things as whole numbers, fractions, maybe even rational numbers, and they are the means we use, not just in mathematics but of course in physics and chemistry and biology and economics and a whole heap of other things, they're the means that we deploy to get a grip on the world. And if you're the likes of somebody like Stephen Wolfram, I think you do believe that the world ultimately is a computational machine. Well, I think I've given plenty of good reasons why that's not so, at least in my view, but certainly you can make number and logic and the processes that you can apply to both sovereign, and then you do end up with a very computational view of the universe which is not one that I share however as we go down that road there's an interesting point to be made and that is that there's nothing that gives this number system its conceptual priority in particular Why shouldn't we think, in terms of primal intervals and clouds, rather than points and lines? So that instead, I mean this goes along with the fuzziness, if you think about it, instead of seeing buildings as having sharp edges, and roofs having sharp edges that intersect at points, instead, because those buildings are themselves fuzzy, We should think instead that they have fuzzy edges that meet in fuzzy points or areas or intervals or maybe even spheres or what mathematicians like to call open spherical neighborhoods in analysis. Maybe we should think instead of the world in terms of intervals and of clouds. And then when we come across what are called poles in functions like If you take one over r as r tends to zero, when r gets to zero you're in dead trouble because it becomes infinite. But suppose if we think of intervals as being primal, not points, then you don't get to zero. The closest you get to zero is when r gets within a certain spherical neighborhood of zero, in however many dimensions you please. And in that sphere, zero itself, given that this is now a probabilistic thing, the probability in that sphere that r is zero is zero. And the way we describe this in mathematics is that zero in that scenario has zero measure. And this is because when you've got an infinite number of things you can't say that any one of them has a finite probability still less that all of them have a finite probability because obviously if you add infinitely many finite probabilities up the chances are that you're going to get something that's at least bigger than one and potentially a lot bigger than one so this is one of the problems that mathematicians have always faced when they're dealing with infinities and in particular and i'm sorry about this uncountable infinities Of the light that arise in the real line in what's called the continuum because you can't give them all non-zero weight because once you add up infinitely many non-zero weights you get something that's potentially infinitely big no matter how small the weights may be so that if you say oh i want to take i want to take uh, 10 to the minus 12 as the value of each point that's fine until I've got 10 to the 15 points and then it comes to 10 to the 10 to the 3 or a thousand and if it's supposed to satisfy a unitarity condition i.e that it integrates or sums to one which probabilities always must since there's nothing more certain than certainty then you've got a problem and mathematicians have been dealing with this and the whole renormalization thing that i talked about a few episodes ago is about just this, that once you start to get infinite infinities, if you allow that a particle can have zero radius and therefore infinite mass or charge or whatever it might be, then there's no force in the universe that can move it. Infinite force meets immovable object. It's one of those medieval angels on the head of a pin questions. But once you allow for zero, 1 over R is going to be a problem. So let's try and get rid of that notion. Let's start to think, not in terms of points, sorry about the planes, don't seem to have much luck, maybe the, the, the breast pocket trick will sh- shield us from some of that too. When you've got a, a case where you don't allow R to become zero, it's only allowed to become very, very small, arbitrarily close to zero, and somewhere in an interval centred on zero but not actually zero then what happens is that the probability that it is zero in that space is zero and so your singularity just evaporates. Now I don't have the mathematical ability to do the maths that might need to be done in order to justify this rigorously from an analytic point of view but it seems to me to be a rather obvious way to avoid the otherwise rather artificial ways in which renormalization and indeed regularization are done. Although I'm still reading about this and it does appear that some of the tricks that is are done in regularization involve pretty much the same kind of thing. And once you get into string theory that you might have heard of you sort of get into the same area where instead of worrying about points which are problematic, you start worrying about the knots of string, hypothetically, conceptually, which can be extended in space, albeit on a very, 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 very tiny scale. So maybe we're talking the same language. I don't know enough about it. So the second thing, first thing was, think fuzzy. The second thing is, think interval don't think points and lines and moreover think cloud because if you don't have points you don't have lines since lines are just collections of points instead you have tubes if you like or lozenges or uh, clouds of solid almost like rubber tube but solid rubber tubes solid is the wrong metaphor but I mean I think you can get what I mean, that you have a sort of tubular cloud which represents the ongoing area or volume in which a particular trajectory could lie and that constitutes a line or the equivalent of a line in this new conceptualization. So already we've made quite a lot of changes to our fundamental intuitions and I think it's very difficult To see them through, to hold on to them, to force them home, to make them bite, but I do think it's possible and I also think it's highly desirable that we should do so because the way we are thinking in terms of points and lines just isn't going to work for quantum theory as we currently understand it, for quantum field theory especially, and we need to get away from it we need to get away from the points and lines thing. And who knows, it may be that as a result of getting away from it, and as a result also of course of doing a bit more reading, I'll discover that the people who are arguing or proposing things that regularise and renormalise the quantum theory based upon conventional mathematics, are getting somewhere near to the same sort of ideas. I shared all this with GPT-4 two or three times Um, And on the assumption that it is programmed not to deliver BS just to keep its punters happy so they keep coming back for more and spending more money, it seemed rather to like them. In fact, it encouraged me to pursue the idea because it said that there were lots of other people who were similarly thinking about it and that it's not just the people who can deal with the technical side of things who are valuable but the people who can deal with the conceptual side of things so I am slightly albeit slightly cautiously encouraged by that and will therefore pursue it no doubt making all sorts of blunders along the way but caveat emptor applies of course to that as it does to everything else in this podcast just don't take anything I say as gospel take it as an idea take it as the ramblings of an ancient man in his dotage and uh, see what you can make of it and try and do better because that's the ultimate objective is to do better Uh, there may well be other reconceptualizations that well I suppose yeah there is obviously a third isn't there yeah, there is obviously a third and I'm not sure whether I can sort of do that off the cuff without thinking about it a bit but I'll mention it. We've talked about fuzzies, we've talked about intervals, spherical neighbourhoods and clouds. The how to think quantum number three has got to do with uh, entanglement, action at a distance, and connectedness, that despite being unimaginably far apart there might well still be ways in which the quantum world is connected and not connected in ways that require signals to transfer at the speed of light or faster but connected in ways that are literally instantaneous and that is the idea of quantum entanglement, And a lot's been written about it, a lot of nonsense has been written about it too. I think perhaps I might just press pause and play you a jingle of indeterminate... Well, the jingle will be very short, but the pause between part one and part two of this episode might be quite long as I think about what I want to say about entanglement, because I haven't really been giving it much thought over the past few weeks. And in order to avoid adding to the confusion that there is already there, I think I should just uh, spare you wild conjectures and think about it a little bit first. So that's uh, brought us to the end of part A of episode 20 of series 10. Let's, uh, Let's have a little jingle and then see where we get to later on, indeterminately later on. Quantum mechanically, fuzzily. Interval-wise, later on, where the interval can be as large or as small as you like. Thank you. If you want to see what I've said already about entanglement, there's quite a bit in series six, a long time ago, especially episodes 21 and 36. In the latter, I said, and I still stand by it, but probably rather more so than even then, the kind of phenomenon that we encounter in quantum entanglement isn't as remarkable as we think it is, because the presuppositions that make it seem remarkable are themselves mistakes. Because the notion that two things that are separated by enormous distances could somehow be entangled in the way that quantum mechanics envisages only appears improbable, only appears impossible, if we are thinking of it in terms that are derived from prior physical theories about the universe. End of quote. And we should add, derived from our local and really very limited perception of what constitutes reality and intelligibility, the two of course being very much related and correlated. I also say in 36 of series 6, the universe does what the universe does, which may seem as trite a truism as is imaginable, but meant and was intended to mean in this context that the universe is completely indifferent to whether we understand what it is doing, find what it is doing intelligible, or not. So any suggestions I made in 621 or 636 about entanglement, long-standing listeners may remember that 621 was a celebratory episode to mark the 200th episode of the whole series in which I confessed I was going to cast off the shackles of constrained conjecture. Such long-standing listeners should should remind themselves that 621 should be understood as a counterweight to the kinds of mysticism that even physicists sometimes indulge. And indeed, as a conceptual counterweight at that, there just isn't a reason to reject out of hand the notion that particles separated by huge distances cannot somehow still be part of a single connected process and as such dependent on one another. Instead, we should see them as the eruptions and manifestations of processes whose roots lie in the distant past, that are only now becoming evident. And yes, there is a danger that this will be taken to support determinism, but it need not, for precisely the reason I gave then. The print engineer who selects a paper from the print run and intervenes because something is wrong, one of the colours is deficient or the, line, the alignment isn't right, whatever it may be, may only have a very slender opportunity to influence the course of events by stopping the machines, by pressing the stop button, by swiping left and right. But our relatively new understanding of the supersensitivity of physical systems tells us that that is all we need. So... After the fuzziness and after the intervals and the spherical neighbourhoods and getting rid of points and lines, the first two of our quantum reconceptualizations, the third change to our conceptual habits, what you might call the real renormalization of quantum theory that's necessary, requires that we, to the greatest extent possible, however limited that may be, stop thinking out of our local physical and conceptual experiences, out of our own human experiences, trying, that is, forever to make sense of the world in ways we can understand. And instead, we should allow the universe to do what the universe does, without slapping some inappropriate and probably premature theory on it to try to make sense of it in ways that make sense to us and that we can understand. After all, when push comes to shove, it may not make sense, at least to us. It may not even be something that can make sense to creatures with our intellectual and experiential apparatus we may be incapable of understanding whatever sense it makes. But that, I need hardly remind you, is just the point. The assumption of the ubiquity of human understanding is a legacy of the days when we thought ourselves the special privileged creations of a divinity who was inordinately fond not just of beetles but of the likes of you and me thank you for listening